to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thanks so much for listening. Where I am now, there's a bit of a nip in the air. It's getting to be sweta to misquote Saturday Night Live. And for travelers, for many travelers, that means fall foliage season is upon us. Leaf peeping time. But will it be a good season or a meh season this year? To discuss that and also to tell us where to go in New England, I have Kim Knox Beckius on the line. I'm very proud to say she is one of the authors of the upcoming Fromer's New England Guide, and she is the travel editor for the esteemed Yankee magazine. Hey, Kim, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. It's so good to be with you, Pauline. So the big question, I know you guys at Yankee, I mean, fall foliage is like your Super Bowl, right? How is it going to be this year? Are we going to be winners or losers? You know, it absolutely is our time of the year. And we have our wonderful expert foliage forecaster, Jim Salji, who's both a former meteorologist from the Mount Washington Observatory, now a high school physics teacher. And he is so passionate. He watches this all year. And I love what he said to our webinar attendees last week. He said, we're so blessed in New England. We don't have (laughs) mess seasons. We have good to great. And so Mm. even a good season is worth seeing. And we are definitely talking about a good season, if not a great season uh, this year. And some bonuses that even though the colors may be a bit muted, a bit pastel, that we're we're going to have a long season Ah. we're anticipating. And that opens up a lot of opportunities to see beautiful vistas. So we're excited about that part of the forecast. Yeah, last year it was kind of meh because there had been droughts throughout New England. This year the opposite happened and and you saw flooding in in Vermont and torrential rains in many regions. Why didn't it why didn't it get better from the flooding? So, you know, the rain did help. Our our leaves started this year coming off of that drought year already a little stressed, um, you know, trees mm. as we started this season. You know, Jim, you know, who, who again, like it's not just the fall. He watches what's happening with tree development all year. We had, you know, New England always has unusual weather, but this was a particularly bizarre year. We had record low temperatures on February 4, up and down huh. the eastern seaboard, negative temperatures in the teen, you know, negative teens in Boston for the first time in 50 years. Mm. That was damaging, especially to some of the ornamental trees, fruit trees that um, are, are starting to wake up around that time. Then again, May 18, we had this record low. So we, we you know, trees got, a, you know, a lot of stress this year. And so the water mm. has certainly helped, but excess water is not good either because those floods, as you mentioned in Vermont, you know, there are things like leaf fungus. They're not fun to talk about. But they yeah. they start to happen when there is too much moisture. Um, but that said, we are in for, I'm in Connecticut, a, just a spell of tremendous weather coming next week with temperatures almost getting back up to 80 degrees again in the forecast. Wow. So that's always this, you know, kind of wonderful pause that again, extends the season, gives us um, gives us time and, and time is of the essence because these six weeks go by so fast. Well, you say that it's going to be an extended season, but when will it peak? And I know that's a hard question to answer because New England's a large region with with many different microclimates. Uh, But for the vast majority of New England, when will the peak hit? 
So absolutely. Um, The peak always comes earliest up north. It works its way south and toward the coastal areas. So the timing all depends on what part of New England and also what elevation you're at. And the beauty here is that even if you put yourself in one home base, you're typically not more than an hour or two's drive from somewhere that there are peak leaves to see, whether it means driving up a mountainside or into a valley. So that is part of what's wonderful. We're expecting a late peak in the northern and mountainous areas of of the region. So instead of this time, which would be typical late September, we're going to be bumping into October down in the southern and coastal areas of New England. Originally, Jim Salji was predicting on time peak, which is typically mid-October, but you know, this the- typically Columbus Day weekend, yeah, right? That's what we always had traditionally thought, but with this another spurt of warm weather coming our way, uh, could be a week to 10 days later. So I would I would say maybe the third week of October is really when we're looking at peak, but I'm looking out my window right now here in Central Connecticut, and we've got these beautiful uh, autumnal tints. Uh, you know, it, it just really is already starting to be that that breathtaking sort of time of year. And one thing I like to tell people is I, I'm a little bit sappy, but there's always at least one tree every season that is just so stunning it brings me to tears. And that is true in every single year, drought, rain, whatever happens. uh, Some of these trees are show-offs and (laughs) they they perform for us uh, reliably every year. So Yes, absolutely. And what also happens reliably is crowds on weekends. Uh, I know that many of the inns of New England probably have been booked solid for months now for peak season. So You, a couple of years ago, wrote a really helpful article for Yankee about the hidden places you can go in New England, Uh, the the towns and the roads that that people may not think about going to, like, I hope I'm going to get this name right, Chepachet, Rhode Island. Uh, Chepachet is, you know, I... I'm oh, Chepachet. Okay. I am pronouncing it right. So we'll, we'll talk about it as the northwest corner of Rhode Island. That's probably a, a good way for people to visualize where this is. Rhode Island is tiny. It's the ocean state. People don't think of it for fall foliage, but more right. than 50% of Rhode Island is forested. And in that mm. wonderful area, Route 102 is really the best foliage drive through Rhode Island. But there is also Brown and Hopkins, one of the oldest general stores in America a wonderful antique shop called Old Stone Mill that has a fireplace going. So on those kind of crisp days when you wander into an antique store and there's a real wood fire burning, it's just just classic. And I call that an introverted leaf lover's paradise. <laughs> you won't see the crowds. Nobody's heard of Chipachet. So that's a, a great spot to get away from other other leaf oglers and, uh, right. and enjoy, enjoy the season. You also recommend... Hebron, New Hampshire, especially if you're a hiker, right? Yes. So, so many of what um, are called high reward, but low effort hikes, which are great for people who aren't, you know, weekend warriors, but want to get out, right. crunch around in those leaves. Um, it's a town on Newfound Lake, which is above Lake Winnipesaukee, kind of just north of the lakes region that is so popular. And so it's a lake that, you know, summer folks know and they go back to year after year, but it's not on fall leaf peepers radar necessarily. So a really neat place to go. And if you don't want to hike, you can actually drive the entire shoreline around the lake. And that's a that's a beautiful drive. 
Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Now, Riverton, Connecticut was your next pick. Is that where you live? It's just down the road from me. You know, Riverton <laughs> was famous once for the Hitchcock Furniture Factory. And so people used to go to get their Hitchcock stenciled chairs and tables. And ever since that factory closed, no one seems to find their way to Riverton. It's a little bit of a ghost town. And Hmm. that time seems to have forgotten, but there is a wonderful old stagecoach in there that dates back to 1796. Tremendous trout fishing on the west branch of the Farmington River. So nothing beats that. A great old country fair over Columbus Day weekend. State forests um, that are just wonderful for hiking. So, um, and and one of the coolest things you can do is book your own private glass blowing experience with Peter Greenwood, whose gallery and studio is in an old church. And that's this quintessential artisan experience. Come away with a souvenir, something you've created yourself. And what what a makings of just a wonderful fall weekend. Now. When people think fall foliage, they usually think inland. They don't think about the coast of New England. But you say that Rockland, Maine, which is a tremendous coastal city in Maine, is actually a place people should consider. Are there enough trees there that that close to the the, the ocean? So um, again, no, not necessarily. But Rockland has great access to both interior Maine. Um, so you're hmm. staying on the coast where you're, you're going to find some accommodations options where you might not find them elsewhere. You can drive inland quite easily, drive to the top of Mount Batty and Camden very easily. And you almost have Acadia-like views from there that are, ah. are quite remarkable. Uh, you might bump into me. I'm actually heading to Rockland on the 14th and 15th of October to Wow. To visit the Sail Power and Steam Museum, where they have a wonderful Sunday music jam. So bring your guitar and come and join me up there. Uh, It's also the 75th anniversary of the Farnsworth Museum in Rockland. So, uh, again, just a great place to visit anytime and fall. You've got great access to, to scenic drives, but the availability and affordability of accommodations, especially as we get to the mid late part of the season. Well, you're bringing up something important. You know, you can't spend all your time staring at leaves. That'll drive you nuts. And one of the great things about Rockland, as you've been saying, is it's a major museum town. And I am so glad you said that, Pauline, because (laughs) we got a question on our webinar about what if I come and I'm disappointed? And I actually said, I put my mom voice on disappointment is not allowed because (laughs) it's New England. It's so rich with everything. And fall is about so much more than these temperamental leaves. You know, it's about pumpkins and the harvest and apple picking and apple cider donuts and hay rides. And it's just, there's so many layers of tradition and experience here that uh, I can't imagine not, not being just leaving feeling fully um, refreshed and and in love with this region, really. Yeah. Now, the last one uh, that's a hidden place to go was my favorite because it's really good for procrastinators. Mm -hmm. If you don't get it together and you travel late in the season, but you still want to see the leaves, where do you go? 
I always send people to Cape Cod because it is a, a late peaking area. Sandwich, uh, Massachusetts is a great place to base yourself because you can explore both the Cape and the South Shore below Boston. This is cranberry country and people forget that we have, again, other fall colors that aren't just mm. used. Those cranberries ripen, they turn the most beautiful ruby red. The harvest process, if you get to observe it, is remarkable to see. And so there's that other layer of cranberry color that you get to experience in the fall. And that's interesting. I'd never thought of going to the cranberry bogs in fall. Something that needs to be, you know, reserved well in advance, or is it something you can just stroll up and do? Well, there are cranberry farms that you can just visit. Carver, Massachusetts is sort of a hotbed of cranberry farms. Um, some some do have, you know, become a bog harvester for a day experience. Those probably do require a little bit of advanced thinking. But again, even just that kind of drive by and seeing them at their peak of ripeness. And cranberries are so healthy. So, you know, picking up a bag of fresh harvested cranberries is wonderful. Right. And I should mention also that Yankee has out right now what the most popular drives are and what good alternatives would be for those drives. Uh, so uh, just to give some of the most popular so you can avoid them, mm-hmm. if, if you don't want to deal with crowds, they are Smuggler's Notch, the Acadia Loop, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that's in Acadia National Park. Correct. The Mohawk Trail and the, oh, Conca, Conca Ma- Angus, oh, Darn, what, how do you pronounce that one? You know, we just call it the kink. That's so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> highway. Um, yeah, you know, so there were, there were a lot of social media stories last year about the kink being so backed up and people just sitting. And so, you know, again, we don't want to tell you not to do it. It is sure. a, a, one of the ultimate fall experiences, but go early in the morning, get, you know, get up in your jammies and drive. Or midweek. Or midweek and find those off times when you won't necessarily be sitting with the peak crowd, but also Route 113 through Evans Notch right there in the White Mountains. Beautiful as well. And you won't bump into those traffic jams at all. So well, unless your article has <laughs> given away the secret and now that's going to be crowded too. We, and this web this uh, this podcast. We have to worry about that just a little bit. <laughs> we contribute to the madness and and uh but you know I just we recommend for example instead of the Mohawk Trail, which is one of the the earliest scenic drives ever established in, in the Berkshires of western Massachusetts. The, the Jacobs Ladder Scenic Byway is a great alternative. And then some detours off of there. So Route 8 is one of those detours. And I just drove it last weekend. It is, again, just these beginning stages of color. But so, yeah. so beautiful to drive along the river. I was on my way. I'll, I'll have to kind of give another secret away just to your listeners. I haven't written yet about the Dream Away Lodge, which has recently reopened. And this is the cutest little roadside music venue. You drive and drive through the woods up a mountainside. You think like I was with a friend who thought I was kidnapping him, you know, and (laughs) you arrive at this roadhouse with a hot band playing great food. It was a place that was made famous by Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and then sadly had closed. And we've got new owners who are just breathing wonderful new life into the dream away. So, and where is it? It is in Beckett. Beckett, Massachusetts. So 
Yeah. So that's my, yeah. my newest, freshest, just from this weekend tip. Wow. Good to know. Good to know. Well, there's always so much great stuff on Yankee. Before I let you go, I know that Jim Salji is daily putting up his report now about where the peaks are, where you, you go later. How do people find that online? So our newengland.com website is actually newly redesigned and relaunched this year. Wonderful repository of Yankee content. We've got a foliage drop-down menu that you can dive right into some of the latest foliage coverage. Everything from the best fall things to do in Boston. Don't want to forget that the cities are fun and vibrant this time of year as well. Sure. Some of those backroads trips and secret places, all of the, the things that we love to share with travelers. Well, it's been such a delight speaking with you, Kim. Thank you so much for sharing all these secrets with our listeners. I appreciate being able to talk with you, Pauline. Love the show and we'll look forward to other opportunities to connect about New England. Advice is always changing. It's been a very volatile time in travel with the pandemic and now with the recovery from the pandemic. So I wanted to have my colleague, Jason Cochran, editor-in-chief of Fromers.com, back on because we've been giving a lot of damn good advice on the website recently that I think will help anybody who's planning to travel in the coming weeks. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on once again to the Fromer Travel Show. It's always a pleasure to be here. So you put up two really timely articles just last week. One of them had to do with the fact that more and more people are renting EV vehicles. Is that Am I saying the term right? It's basically electric vehicles, right? It's the same thing. An EV is an electric vehicle, right? Okay. And, and uh, I know that there can be problems with this because I, I've had friends post on Facebook that one of them thought they were uh, renting a hybrid, didn't realize it was electric, and they ran out of gas and had no idea how to refill it. How common is that scenario? Generally, most of the people who rent EVs know they're renting an EV. They tell you they're, it's an EV versus a hybrid. I mean, a hybrid takes gas, and then, you know, when you're going certain speeds and braking, it'll recharge a battery, it can use at low speeds. That's been on the market for many years, a Prius. The EVs are sure. what's growing large and lar larger and larger on the market. And now almost all of the major rental agencies will specifically rent you an EV. And people are doing it because they want to try an electric vehicle. They want to know what it's like because, you know, we're moving in that direction. And as soon as the infrastructure gets better, most of us will be driving an EV probably in another 20 or 30 years. So a lot of people so, are testing him out by renting one, not knowing that the rules, as your friends discovered on Facebook, are a little bit different. Well, okay. Well, let's talk about how the rules are different. Uh, give me rule number one and how it differs. Well, the first thing you need to realize when you rent an electric vehicle is it's going to take time to charge it. So whereas it might take you five minutes to put some gas in your car and then zoom away again, it might take you half hour or an hour to fill uh, the battery to the appropriate level before you can depart with an EV. 
And a lot of people need to budget that time into their itineraries. Like if you're, you know, you you need to be there at a certain hour, you need to plan so that you have that time to 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 fill it up. And also there's something else to consider when you start to wait, fill wait, up. Wait, wait, before we leave that, before we leave that, yeah. that adds a lot of complexity, I would think, because if you're driving the vehicle for the first time, you may not know how fast it's going to run out of energy. Absolutely. And s- yeah. So, so uh, how do you put together an itinerary with that kind of uncertainty? And it's hard. Yeah. This is unfortunately this is one of those things where if you own an electric vehicle, you learn its ins and outs, you learn its timing, its schedule, what you need to do. But you know, you're renting a car, you're not going to be as familiar with its efficiency. For example, right. you know, a car can be less efficient um, if it's hot outside. It can. Uh, there are figures that the AAA have just have. Of release that if it's about 95 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and you're using your air conditioner in an electric vehicle, your driving range will be knocked down by as much as 17%. Um, and depending wow. on whatever that vehicle's driving range is, some you know it used to be 200 miles. Some some vehicles will go further, but you need to sort of know what your driving range is even going to be. But when you're planning your day, um, this is why when you rent an electric vehicle. It's smarter not to do it for long road trips that you're going to be in a car for eight hours a day. It's much smarter to use it for something where you know your leg of your trip is going to be maybe an hour or two or three. That's probably enough time that you know, you'll still have enough juice in the battery and you can plug it in at your destination. Don't go too far. That way you won't test the limits of whatever your EV is. Oh boy. Wow. That is so surprising. I was thinking you would have all night to charge an EV and then you could drive it as much as you wanted the next day. Well, that's very true. Yeah. I'm talking though, but if you're going to go, you have a plan to go 400 miles in a single day, that's going to be something you need to stop midday for. If you're just going to go 150, 200 miles in your day, yes, you can plug it in overnight. But if you need to go a longer distance, you need to build that time to, to top it up in the middle of your trip. And I guess the other consideration is where do you top it up? I mean, I would think if you own one of these, you know the places around your community where you can top up and you have you have a charger at your home. But if you're renting, a lot of that is guesswork, right? Or is it? No, it's not necessarily guesswork, but there there's there's two different systems. Tesla has its own you know, type of charger. And when you plug in your destination in a Tesla, it tells you where all the charging stations are along the way. And it's a little easier. But there are other networks that other um, uh, makes will use. There's Polestar, there's Nissan Leaf, there's BMW. They have different charging networks that can be compatible with each other, but they're not the same as the Tesla one. So you, you'll use an app or you'll use the, the car system to tell you where the charging systems stations are. But you also, it's like anything. Some of them might be broken. Some of them might be full of people waiting to charge. Huh. So it may not necessarily be something you can do right away. Uh, or do even you might need to charging, find one or two. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Do all of the charging stations work for all brands of electronic no. Uh, cars? No. No. Ooh. For example, Tesla uses one that's different from the the one that other makes will use. It's not really um, – it, it doesn't end up being that complicated when you're in it because you just set your app to look for that specific network. Now, some Teslas do come with adapters that let you use either network 
But if you're renting a Tesla, you have to make sure you've got that adapter with you. They'll, you. They might have it at the rental counter, but you know who knows? This is all new. Sometimes these things don't make it through to the customer. So yeah, not right. and also, also not every station is going to work fast enough for you mm-hmm. because there's different levels of chargers. Like you said, you might have one at home. That's a level one usually. That's something you can plug into the wall of your outlet of your house. That's really slowly. And um, huh. yeah, that's something that you you do plug in your car overnight because it takes lots of time. But there's also level two um, and there's level three. Level three is the fastest. That's the one you want to look for on a road trip because then you'll, you know, it's the quickest you can possibly go before you have to, right. to move on. You can charge with a level three charger an EV to about 80% full in about 20 minutes. And, and the way this works in the EV land, you don't fill it up the way you would with gas. You fill it up to about 80 anyway because the battery power is preserved if you leave that 20%. So 80% huh. full is full in EV land. Now, I'm also assuming that different parts of the United States and different parts of the world will have different capabilities in terms of how many charging stations they have, right? How do you know that you're even going to a place where it's logical to assume you can recharge your car? Well, you use the app that comes with the car, oh, or you use right. your own app, and you can plan it out even before you leave your house if you know but which are kind there of car place, you might get. Uh, but are there regions where you're more likely, so you you know you're thinking, okay, I'm going to California. Right, um, right. I can probably do it there. Well, as so, a rule so before of thumb, you get it to the work, it's changing all the time. You know, things are opening constantly. But as a rule of thumb, there are slightly a higher concentration of electric charging stations in the Western United States than there are in the East. But that huh. infrastructure, it, I think, if we talk again in six months. I probably have a different calculation because things are moving so quickly and uh, chargers are being installed in so many places where they weren't even a year ago. Is there anything I haven't asked you that people should know about? uh, My big thing is when you rent that car, you need to return it just like you would with a gas or hybrid vehicle. You need to return it to what the rental agency says is full. So you're going to need to remember that if you have a morning flight at six in the morning and you're at 30% on your EV, you're going to get hit with a charge if you just try to return it that way or if you haven't included enough time in your morning to bring it back up to the 70 or 80% that they're going to want. You'll, you'll have a, a $35, $40 fee just as you would if you had emptied it with less than a full tank of, of gas. So you need to budget that extra time. You need to not be on the run cutting your schedule so close when you rent an EV that you're not, you're not ready for that extra time that takes to find a charger and then to wait for it to finish charging. Really interesting. Um, uh, Switching to another mode of transportation, my favorite study of the year just came out. It comes out every year. It is a look at billions of data points that is done every year by the Airline Reporting Corporation in partnership with Expedia. And this year, uh, our colleague Zach wrote an article about their findings. And it's so interesting. Some things shift year to year. Some things stay the same. Uh, This year for the, I think it's the fifth year in a row, Sunday remains the best day to book travel. So you mean do the actual, uh, yeah, purchase, make your purchase. Book, I mean, purchase. And and you actually can save a significant amount of money. You're going to save 13% uh, than you would on the most expensive day of the week, which is, I believe, Fridays for international fares, and 6% less, and this is all statistically, this is not every time, but 6% less for domestic fares. 
what shifted, and I knew this was going to shift, last year as we were coming out of the pandemic, they came out with a stat that the best time to buy international fares was six months in advance. Now, I think that's because very few people were buying international fares six months in advance because things were so uh, up in the air. Nobody knew if they would actually be able to travel. Now things have normalized. Now for an international ticket, the best time period for getting a good price is 60 days in advance, two, four months. So somewhere between two and four months before your trip is going to be the sweet spot. For domestic trips, and this has stayed the same, the sweet spot is just one month before travel. You want to be booking your travel 28 days before you go. I, I, you know, I go to a lot of travel shows around the United States. I'll be doing the international travel show next in New York in a couple of weeks. And I always get the question, how many months in advance should I book my airfares? Because people get anxious and they, they assume that the early bird, you know, catches the worm. And so they think, oh, I'll book eight months in advance and get the best fare that way. But that never works. They know the airlines know they've got you if you do that. And so 28 days this year is the best time. Happily, prices are down overall from last year. Doesn't which feel like surprised. It. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it. Uh, and also, we did an article on uh, holiday airfares, and those are up 12% from last year. But in general, you're going to pay two to four percent less, thank goodness, uh, than you would have in 2022, or so they're saying right now. It's a really good article. It's written by Zach, so it has funny zingers in it. It's it's a joy to read. And so, if you're booking an airfare in the coming weeks, look at that. If you're booking to come to uh, to come home for the holidays, we have a, a specific article just for that, which has very different advice. Um, briefly. Since Christmas is going to be on a Monday this year, Friday and Saturday are going to be crazy for airfares. And they're saying that Christmas Eve, actually, the fares are plunging. So if you don't mind traveling Christmas Eve, that's the best time to do it. For Thanksgiving, it's either the Monday before the holiday or the Friday after it for flights. And it's interesting because Christmas Eve being potentially the, one of the cheaper days to fly this year is a Sunday. And in the Expedia study that we talked about, Sunday is the most expensive day to actually do the flying. So it's the one yeah. exception to the Sunday rule is Christmas Eve this year. Otherwise, right. don't fly yeah. on a Sunday. Try, try to start your trip on a Thursday. And I should say that these prices are all on the base fares, but you did a, a, a hair-raising article on which airlines charge fees that can double, triple, or quadruple more, the cost more. of the flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so which is the worst airline for extra fees? You know, I, to a I think study? a lot of Americans would guess this, but not quite how much it does inflate the price. There's an airline in the US, and I'm about to say what it is, that if when you do all the extra fees, if you accept all the things they ask you to accept, you've raised the price of the base airfare by more than 700%. So wow. nearly, nearly eight times. And that is, of course, Spirit. Spirit. <laughs> of course, Spirit Airways. But in their, in their defense, their prices are often lower to start with, right? 
Well, I mean, uh, you're not going to pay that price. So, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, so it's, like a pri- it's like a fake price. They do it, of course, so they would be on top of all the search results. Oh, look, yeah. $12 airfare or whatever, you know. Um, but that's no yeah. one actually pays that because you need to print a boarding pass and they charge you, you know, they might charge you for it the way the EasyJet does in, the, in the, uh, Europe. But even even their more higher priced uh, companions or higher base priced companions will double the cost when all the fees are added in. I mean, nobody is at zero in this study, right? Nobody. The, some so of the giant airlines in the U.S., the ones that just pretty much double the price is Alaska and also Allegiant. But the major carriers, the legacy carriers like United Delta, uh, they tend to make it about 122%, 150%. So double and a half, right? Than what you would normally, yeah. than what you're quoted at the very start of the process. I propose, why don't we have the most expensive airfare as the list, what's listed on search results and give you the option of reducing it by taking things away rather than these fake low prices <laughs> no one pays that we add things on to. But no, no uh, me. Tell Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can get his ear. I think that's a great solution. Well, like, you know, most of the this. politicians, both in Europe and the US, and the, the problems are less bad in Europe because there are regulations against things like this. So all the US airlines charge way more. But it's all it's framed in the US as they must disclose these extra fees rather than these extra fees should be banned. Uh, so really, yeah. that's the direction we're heading in that we're going to keep these, but you're just going to know about them earlier. Well, on that unhappy note, I'm going to thank you as always for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show, Jason. Thank you very much. Thanks. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I know we threw a lot of numbers at our listeners, so you can read all of these articles on Fromers.com. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye for this week. I thank you as always for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Spence.